You guys hear me okay? Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Kelly. How's everybody doing? Good? Okay. This is going to be a little weird. This is like the first time, all right, don't stand under the speakers. Uh, this is the first time I'm going to do a presentation where my computer is over there. So we'll see how well this works. Uh, so, yeah, I currently work at Box. Uh, we're a cloud storage company. And I have written a bunch of books. Uh, if you're interested, you should go check them out. Um, people always ask me, like, how hard is it to write a book? It's actually not hard. You just have to have a lot of free weekends. And I have tons of those, so that's where those come from. If you want to find me online, uh, I'm Slipnet on Twitter. Uh, if you don't ask questions later on, but you maybe think of some tomorrow or whatever, just tweet at me and be happy to answer them there. Now, I want to get right to the point of what I'm going to talk about, and that is uh, dark chocolate covered almonds. <laughs> so, how many people love dark chocolate covered almonds? Yeah, they're like really ridiculously good. So I discovered dark chocolate covered almonds when I was looking for a healthier snack. And like there's nuts, which is protein, and that's good. And dark chocolate, which is much better for you than milk chocolate, they say. I thought this would be great. So I went to Whole Foods and I bought a bunch of dark chocolate covered almonds. Uh, and I thought it would be really kind of cool to just have a bowl on my table my coffee table in the living room, because when people come over, they could just you know, have some, uh, it would be really cool. And I was sitting there one night watching TV, and had a craving, and I leaned over and I grabbed one. Uh, and then I leaned over and I grabbed another. And before I knew it, I had eaten the whole bowl, and ended up with like, a really bad stomach ache. <laughs> and, I feel like that's a lot like what happens with JavaScript now, is that people love it so much that they just don't know when to stop. Uh, and that's what this talk is about, is knowing when to stop. Now, if you go back in time, uh, like 2004, people didn't always love JavaScript like they do today. So for instance, it was very common to go onto a forum and see a post like this, and I don't know if you guys can read that or not, but it says, why does JavaScript suck so much? This is really common. Actually, I'm going to read it over here. It says, this is really awesome, so I'm going to read the whole thing. This is in uh, January 2004. Granted, I was never that good at Java, but JavaScript drives me nuts, especially because you don't declare what kinds of data types are getting passed in methods. We are trying to write some stuff for a mapping website, and I can't for the life of me figure out how to pass one variable from one method to another. We need to pass the variable region, but I can't figure out how to properly pass it. We declared it as a global, but as soon as the HTML redirects, the JavaScript stops running and the variable disappears. <laughs> so what's even awesomer is a response is that maybe you'll get better results when you use a more robust server-side, object-orientated language like ASP or PHP. Because that's much better. 
So in 2005, something interesting happened. Does anybody know what that was? Ajax. Ajax. Yeah. So this guy, Jesse James Garrett, wrote this article called Ajax, A New Approach to Web Applications. And then all of a sudden, JavaScript became cool. Like, people wanted to know how to do it. And so people started like writing books. So I did. A bunch of other people did as well. It was really, really popular and made JavaScript cool for the first time in its short life. Then 2006 came along. Anybody know what happened in 2006? Anything, did anything happen in 2006? No? So this is when jQuery was introduced for the first time. A very, very important in the history of JavaScript. Because jQuery made JavaScript not scary to a whole bunch of people who wouldn't have tried it before. Instead of looking like a programming language, it started to look more like CSS. And CSS was less scary. So that meant that more people were going to start using JavaScript. And that was really important, because that's when JavaScript's popularity really started to take off. Like, there was Ajax, but then anybody could do it with jQuery. And then in 2007, an uh, article was written by Jeff Atwood from Coding Corner, and he coined the term Atwood's Law, which is any application that can be written in JavaScript will eventually be written in JavaScript. And ever since then, we've been fighting to make this true, to the point where, like today, we're all going crazy writing JavaScript for everything. Now, prior to joining Box, I was a consultant for about a year and a half. And I would frequently get calls like this. Say, help Nicholas, our JavaScript is killing our site performance. It was very, very common. So inevitably, I would go in and do an initial evaluation and find that they had like over a megabyte of JavaScript that they were dealing with. Now, a megabyte is a lot. That's a lot of JavaScript, even when it's not uh, gzipped, to just have around, maintain, and deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, what, the way that I like to think about web applications is to have it be nice and balanced. So we have all of these different layers that have different responsibilities. So there's a server, there's HTML, there's CSS, and there's JavaScript. And it can very nicely be divided up into a bunch of different responsibilities that each of those things are good at doing. So for a server, we have stuff like rendering HTML, constructing HTMLs, constructing URLs, excuse me, calculating dependencies, redirecting. So HTML, we have document structure, we have some native functionality, accessibility. CSS, we have layout and colors, and visibility, and now even animation. And then in JavaScript, we have handling events, and Ajax, and changing UI. And when you have a nice, well-balanced web application, this is how your responsibilities are divvied up. Right? Nothing is doing too much. And it seems like what we want to be doing now more and more is we just take all of that stuff, and we cram it into JavaScript. It's like, we don't want to do any of that other stuff. That's not cool and fun. We want to put it all into the JavaScript. And so consequently, over the years, the amount of JavaScript that's on websites has been trending up. And so this was like the last 
think it was 18 months or so from HTTP archive. And you see the trend is definitely going up. So we had 152K, and now we're at about 187K. And the number of JavaScript requests is also trailing up. And so to put that into perspective, because that was gzipped numbers, if we look at some large sites on the web and see how many bytes they're dealing with with JavaScript, helps to give you a little bit better perspective. So the Yahoo homepage has 196K, which is right at the upper limit of what we just saw as the average. Does anybody know how much that is on GZIPT? Just yell it out like we're friends. Two megs. Two megs. No. Anybody else? 800K. 800K? 500. And at 500? Sounds. So about 568 on GZIPT. So YouTube, 256K GZIPT. You guys should be good at math now. <laughs> About 800. About 800? Okay, so Twitter, 260k. This is where GZIP math gets fun. It should be about the same, right? No, not really. Because it's GZIP math. It's completely bogus. <laughs> so Facebook, 500k. Uh, just GZIP 500k. How much energy is it? 1,800. Yeah, oh, 1.5 meg. 1.5 megs of JavaScript. That is a lot. And that means that we're using JavaScript for way too much. So let's talk about some of the things that have happened with people who've done a lot with JavaScript and the problems that they've had. And by the way, the reason that I care about this so much is because over the life cycle of a project, you will be spending more and more time in JavaScript as the project goes on. So you usually start out with these projects with about an equal amount in HTML and CSS and JavaScript. And then by the end, you're spending most of your time in JavaScript. If that's the thing that causes most of the bugs. That's the thing that's the hardest to maintain. So it actually behooves you to have as little JavaScript as possible to make that maintenance window a little bit easier to deal with. I want to talk a little bit about client-side rendering. This has become really, really popular lately. And it's popular because we have all kinds of tools for it. There's underscore templates, and handlebars, and mustache, and all of this stuff. And really, the client-side rendering alone isn't a huge issue. But when you combine it with some other stuff, that's when you get into problems. So enter Backbone. How many people use Backbone? A few people. How many people have heard of Backbone? OK. So Backbone is very similar to JQuery jQuery introduced JavaScript to people who would not have otherwise thought about it at all. And Backbone did that for JavaScript architecture. Nobody was really thinking about JavaScript architecture before Backbone arrived on the scene. And Backbone introduced people to this whole concept of the MVW framework. That's model view, whatever. Because nobody ever knows what that third thing is. 
We have model view and then something. And Backbone made this MVW concept easy for people to understand. It's a small library. You follow a few basic patterns and you get stuff to work. And that's really powerful. So it's like the jQuery of JavaScript application. Oh, I was supposed to go to this one, but I didn't. That's okay. There was this conference called Throne of JS that happened a couple of years ago, or last year, 2012. I said, it's no longer good enough to build web apps around full page loads and then progressively enhance them to behave more dynamically. So this was a conference that was focused specifically on these MVW frameworks. It's like Backbone and Thorax and Meteor and all of these things that presented these JavaScript architectures and basically said, screw progressive enhancement. We don't need that anymore. Uh, and then we all sat back and laughed at how awesome we were because we had finally thrown down the shackles of HTML and CSS and the server. Except for one thing. It doesn't always work. So on Facebook, which was one of the first big sites to go to this, like, we're going to load just a skeleton page that has nothing on it, and then we'll fill it in later. People started getting blank pages a lot. So much so that they actually finally had to put it up uh, on their help site. They say, well, my home page is blank. Well, then, if you see an empty white screen when you log into Facebook, try refreshing, refreshing your page. If the screen is still blank, please make sure that JavaScript is enabled on your browser. So automatically, no JavaScript, no Facebook. Sorry. Now, that might not be a big deal for URI. Like, maybe we purposely decided to turn off JavaScript. Right? But for regular consumers, for my mom, if she sees something like this, do you know what she does? She calls me and says, Facebook is broken, Nicholas. Fix it. And so thanks a lot, Facebook. Now you're screwing me personally. What's interesting is that a lot of sites were going in that way, and then they started to pull back. So Twitter was one of them. Twitter decided to put everything into the client. And then all of a sudden, one day, they posted this blog about improving performance. And they talked about how they undid all of that. So what they said was to improve the Twitter.com experience for everyone. We've been working to take back control of our front-end performance by moving the rendering to the server. This has allowed us to drop our initial page load times to one-fifth of what they were previously and reduce differences in performance across browsers. So one-fifth of what they had before. Oh, but I thought putting everything in JavaScript was going to make it all really, really fast. Turns out that wasn't the case. And they're not the only ones. So Airbnb had this problem as well. How many people know Airbnb? So Airbnb did the same thing. They put everything into the client, and then they took a step back and said, you know what, that's not working for us. We're going to pull it back to the server. And what they said, so our thesis was if we had a JavaScript runtime on the server, 
we should be able to pull most of this application logic back down to the server in a way that can be shared with the client. Your great new product can run on both sides of the wire, serving up real HTML on first page load, but then kicking off a client-side JavaScript app. So continue. We relaunched our mobile website using this new stack, replacing the backbone and rail stack that we used previously. It looks exactly the same as the app it replaced. However, initial page load feels drastically quicker because we serve up real HTML instead of waiting for the client to download JavaScript before rendering. Plus, it is fully crawlable by search engines. So really cool. They actually created an entirely new framework. It's called Render. Uh, the guy who wrote it was kind enough to swing by Box a couple weeks ago to talk to us. You can go check out the project on GitHub if you're interested. The bottom line is that the server and the browser are way better at doing this than we are. Which makes sense, because they have a lot more experience at it than we do. So why not let the browser and the server do the things that they're good at, and then we can focus on the things that we're good at. The bottom line is that progressive enhancement still works. And it seems like every time there's a wave of people coming up saying, we can't do that stuff anymore, like modern websites require JavaScript, we always end up coming back around to, oh, but it just still works. But another cautionary tale is about unused JavaScript. We load a lot of JavaScript into our pages. And when I was consulting, what I found was that between 60 to 65% of the JavaScript code that was there on page load was actually not being used. Like it was sitting there waiting for somebody to do something to trigger. Now that's a lot of code to just have sitting around in the hope that somebody's going to use it. So what I'd like to do is split up JavaScript into four different times that, they can be, that it can be loaded. And I call these the four JavaScript loading times. There's in the head, which is where we all used to put everything. There's just before the closing body tag, which is where I'm hoping most people put stuff now. There's after page load. And there's on demand. When you start to separate your JavaScript and think about it as when does this have to be loaded, you can start to make more intelligent decisions about what you're doing. So what I would always ask is, what are the top two to three things that your users are doing when they come to this page? In order to know what should be loaded and when, I need to know what people are using. And I need to know the frequency with which they use it. That basically means you need to have analytics. This is usually the missing ingredient for a lot of people. It's like we have this site, we have a lot of people coming to it, we're not sure what exactly they're doing. And just slapping Google Analytics on the page is not enough. You need to know when they come to that page, what's the first thing they're going to do? What's the second thing that they're going to do? What's the third thing that they're going to do? In what order and with what frequency? And is there anything that they're doing that can tell me that they might do something else in the future? Analytics is really important. Um, and frequently not spoken about enough in the context of improving performance. 
Now, ironically, a lot of analytic scripts have to go in the head of the document. That's pretty much what that loading time is used for, is analytics. In fact, if you go to the Google Analytics page, they will actually tell you this should be put into the head of your document. And they're not alone. Most analytics packages want to be put in the head of the document so that uh, just in case somebody hits a stop button, going to hit the refresh button, you're still getting all of that data. Now, before the closing body tag, you want any scripts that are needed by page load. So by the time the page is finished loading, you need that stuff there because that's probably the thing that the user is going to do. Now, as an example, uh, oh, and this is from the high-performance website, Steve Souders' book, so hopefully it's not too big of a surprise. But as an example, uh, if you were to go to the Amazon page for my book, now, everybody's a little bit different, but when I go to an Amazon page, thing that I usually do is I add it to my cart. Because I've done a search, I click through to that page because it's probably what I want, and then I add it to my cart so that I can buy it. So if there's any JavaScript that I want to run when add to cart is clicked, I need to have that loaded before the closing block. Now, after page load, this is for scripts that are needed soon after that point, which means it's like the secondary or tertiary thing that somebody's coming to do. So if you look back at this, I don't know, what, if you're not adding to cart, what else are you doing? What's that? Add it to your wish list. Add it to your wish list? You're reading reviews. Maybe you're reading reviews? Okay, so the reviews are down when you scroll, so you're in pretty good shape there. I'm just going to throw something out there and say that you do another search. Because that's what was set up on the slide, and otherwise this doesn't work very well. <laughs> so I do another search. And Amazon, just like other places that have search, will do like search suggest. So as you type, there's a drop down that comes down. Uh, and all of that requires JavaScript. But that probably doesn't have to be there by page load. So it's safe to start to load that basically in window.onload. I'm going to start bringing in all of that search stuff so that when you do a search, all of that is ready. Now, on-demand is basically in reaction to the user. And that can be anything. Anything that the user is doing can trigger you to go and download some more JavaScript. It's up to you to know what the user is doing, though. And so if we go back here, Say, like, what was like a, an on-demand thing that I might want? Maybe that's actually the wish list. Maybe a lot of people don't do that. Although last time I said I don't do that, I had a room full of very angry people telling me, I do that all the time! That should be there way earlier. Okay. But the slide looks like this, so that's what we're going with. So maybe you only start to load the JavaScript for the wish list when you move the cursor over the button. Or maybe as you're moving towards the button. Or maybe if you move your cursor to the right side of the screen. Like any of those can be triggers to start downloading more stuff. 
And Alex Sexton wrote a really cool article about some work that he had done around this, uh, where basically he was working on a, a product review site and said that when the mouse got within 200 pixels of his button, that's when he would go and download the JavaScript to make that button work. But just watching what the user was doing, it created like a little halo around that button, and then as soon as you crossed into that, start to download the JavaScript. I mean, really the possibilities are endless for this. All you have to do is know what your users are doing and know what the actions are that signal that they are about to do something else. And then go and load the JavaScript. Next cautionary tale is about JavaScript libraries. We all know and love. So JavaScript libraries are kind of big. So how big? So for jQuery, about 27k gzipped, 90k ungzipped. So you're paying a toll just by putting this on your page. Right, right off the bat, you're paying a toll of 27k gzipped, 90k not gzipped. Uh, jQuery 2.x is a little bit smaller, but through weird gzip math, is actually a little bit bigger. Happens from time to time. Uh, YY is around the same. Uh, Dojo is quite a bit bigger. Uh, but the point is that JavaScript libraries aren't free. They come with a cost associated with them. And you have to take that into account when you're considering the total amount of JavaScript that you're using. But to understand a little bit more about JavaScript libraries, it helps to understand how they get built up. So they usually start out without a JavaScript library at all. And you have a component. So you build in like tabs or something like that. And then you decide to build another one. And another one. And at some point you stop and go, you know, there's some similarities in those things. What I'm going to do is I'm going to abstract that out into a library. And then each of those can just depend on the library and I'm not duplicating code anymore. So that's cool. And then you create some more components. And then you find that they have similarities. And so you pull that out, and you wrap it up, and that becomes your library. That becomes jQuery, YUI, Dojo. Everything starts out like this. And so you're getting the benefit because you're removing the duplicate code from the components. Now, as JavaScript libraries develop, they kind of follow this path. So you start out with all component code, and then as you find duplicates, you pull that out into library code. So as a percentage, the amount of library code increases over time, and the amount of component code decreases over time. But also, the number of components that you have increases over time. So as you're adding more components, the core library is getting bigger and bigger. What that basically means is that your JavaScript library is an economies of scale solution. How many people took economics in college? A few people? How many people remember learning about economies of scale? One person? Two people? Great. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, we'll just go over it very briefly. So economies of scale exist when the cost per unit produced 
decreases as the number of units produced increases. Right? So it costs less as you make more, which means that for the first one, you pay a lot. But then, as you're creating more and more and more, you're paying less per unit. And JavaScript libraries work that way. That if you're only using one component, you are paying a big toll to get that one thing on your page. If you're using 10, then it actually starts to make sense because you're taking advantage of all of the base pieces of that library. That also is why you don't want to have a bunch of these libraries on your page. You don't want to have jQuery and YUI and Dojo all on your page at the same time because they all have the same common pieces that their components need. Everybody needs an eventing system. Everybody needs a DOM abstraction. They all have that stuff. And when you add them all to the page, you're paying the same toll multiple times for no good reason. I actually had a client who had YUI and jQuery on the page at the same time. It was YUI 2, so it was pretty big. And they had YUI just to use the autocomplete widget. And that in total was about 250K of GZIPs. 250K for one thing. And then they also had jQuery in there. And they thought that I was brilliant when I said, why don't you replace that autocomplete with like this 25k jQuery one? And it works exactly the same way. And now you're saving like 225k. And they're like, oh my god, you're brilliant. How do you figure that out? This is just math. Right? And economies of scale. It's very simple. Which, by the way, if anybody wants to go into business for JavaScript performance, it's a lot of work. So let's take an example. Tabs. Tabs. Everybody loves tabs, right? Tabs look like that. Hey, what's going on? Okay. Am I over here? Am I over here? Okay. So these are tabs, as you may or may not be aware. Very, very simple. You click, it changes. You click, it changes. Apologize. I'm not a Mac user. This stuff is always really weird to me. Uh, it's not magic, right? I mean, like, fundamentally, you're clicking on something and then you're showing and hiding other stuff. This is not rocket science. And yet... Okay, I'm gonna try this. Did it close my PowerPoint? Is that what you're trying to go back to? I'm trying to. Can I do just like that? Awesome. Okay, the first time I tried to use the Mac for a presentation, it was much worse than this. So tabs. It's kind of like Price is Right. It's like, how much would you be willing to pay for tabs for that functionality where you click on something and something else shows up? And you click on something else and something else. Right? How much? So for jQuery, you want to use jQuery UI. Jesus, what do you think? Yell out a number. 50. 37. 
Okay, so gzip 63, right? Un-gzip, we should be really good at this by now. 120 k. To get tabs, okay, why lie? 30 k gzip, un-gzip 95 k. 95k is less than 120. Still a lot to click on something and have it change. So I also, by the way, that's me in there. I can even tell. It's me. It's a picture of me. That's. How much do you think my gzip solution? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes, because I built it into the browser itself. Yeah, so 1.9k. And then 5k on GZIP. That's all it takes if you write tabs yourself. That's a pretty big difference. And I know what you're thinking, like, how the hell did you do that? Is it because you're some kind of Superman? <laughs> well, no, it's actually not that hard. So step one is you put the HTML onto the page. Right? You don't build it up in JavaScript. So you have some HTML, just laid out like that. No JavaScript yet. Don't need it. Like HTML is actually really good at this. You throw in some CSS, and it looks pretty. So step two, store UI state in the DOM itself. So if you take a look at this, I have the selected tab here, the selected panel here. This is something that not a lot of JavaScript libraries do. I don't understand why. Um, but you have a data structure in the browser that represents your widget. It is called the DOM. Those objects exist already, and you can play with them. You can do stuff to them. You can add more attributes to them. You can remove attributes dynamically. And ironically enough, the DOM represents UI, so why wouldn't you store UI state in the DOM? What most libraries do is they create some other object in memory that has the UI state, and then they're forever uh, stuck synchronizing between that state and the DOM. Always going back and forth synchronizing. In fact, some of the libraries actually have things that say like sync UI or resync UI, stuff like that. It's a waste of time. You don't have to do it. Just stick it in the DOM itself. Still no JavaScript. Now we'll sprinkle in a little bit of JavaScript. So this is actually the only line of JavaScript I have in that page. It just says, hey, go initialize stuff. And it figures out what it's supposed to do, and attaches all the event handlers, and magic happens. And this also works regardless of how many instances are on the page. So I can have one, I can have 12. It's exactly the same. This is what I was talking about. Doing this like new tab view or jQuery dollar sign something tabs. You don't have to do any of that. There's no need for it. All that stuff is in the DOM. All you need to do is just look at the DOM to get your information uh, and then wire up the events that you need. 
But I also end up going through and adding in some additional pieces of information that just make the JavaScript's job a lot easier. So I add in the indexes of each of the tabs, and then the selected index as well. So I don't have to go searching for that every time. They may be saying, well, I'm sure if there's no accessibility. Like, that's why we use those big widgets, because they have all this accessibility stuff built in. And it's actually not true at all. There is, all right, I'm going to take my life into my hands here. Go back over to here. Right, you can tab through. You can use keyboard shortcuts. No, no applause necessary. It's very easy. Uh, so it's all in there, and all without breaking the bank. Hey, it worked. Uh, in terms of how much JavaScript you. Right? So if you were to look at the HTML, you would see all the stuff. The ARIA roles are added in there. Uh, there's also ARIA labeled by uh, and ARIA hidden, and all the appropriate stuff to make this fully accessible, all in 5K of uh, ungzip JavaScript. So what does the JavaScript itself actually do? Well, first, it goes through and looks for tab views with a specific data attribute on it. That's how it knows that that thing is meant to represent tabs. Then it reads the UI state based on the classes that are in the HTML. So it specifically looks for that selected class and says, okay, when I found that, this is the thing that is selected. It annotates the DOM with additional information to show you the selected index. And then it uses event delegation to watch for interaction. So it's not attaching click events to each of those things. It has one event handler that listens on the document and figures out, depending on what's clicked, what should be done. And then all it does is swap classes to react to events. So it removes the selected class here and adds it over there. And that does all of the switching. And that's pretty much it. It's pretty simple. And if you want to go take a look at that code, you can go play with it. It's up on GitHub. Uh, this is not a new library. This is purely for demo purposes and educational purposes only. Please don't file bugs saying that this doesn't work. Uh, if you want to make it work, go make it work, but don't bug me. It's just a demo. So to wrap up, what I really want you to think about is this. Is how much value are you getting out of the bytes that you are using in JavaScript? Because if you're getting very little value from very few bytes, that's okay. If you're getting a ton of value from a ton of bytes, that's okay too. What you want to avoid is getting very little value from a ton of bytes. That's that red rectangle there. A lot of bytes and very little value. And that's what tends to happen when you start throwing JavaScript at everything. You're not getting a ton of value, but you're paying a very high cost. And of course, if you can get away with adding very few bytes and getting very high value, that's awesome. A well-balanced web application separates out the responsibilities across all of the different layers. 
Everything doesn't have to be in the JavaScript. So if you can let the server do what it's good at, let HTML do what it's good at, let CSS do what it's good at, your JavaScript becomes much simpler and there's much less that can go wrong. So keep in mind the four JavaScript loading times. In the head, before the closing body tag, after page load and on demand can really help you to figure out what you should be loading and at what point in time. And remember that JavaScript libraries work on an economies of scale scope. You pay a lot for that first component that you're adding. And as you add more components, you're actually getting more value out of that library. And the libraries that we all use kind of big. So you're paying a bunch just by putting that library on your page for the first time. So make sure that you're getting the most value out of that as possible. And most of all, don't treat JavaScript like I treat dark chocolate covered elements. Know when to stop and avoid the stomach ache. And that is it. <laughs> So these are the various places you can reach me, and these slides are actually already up on SlideShare, if you want to grab the link. And um, want to do like a few questions? Sure. Questions from the audience? Whoa, I can't see people standing in the line. Go ahead. Um, you're talking about loading JavaScript on the end, you have the example of not loading uh, a button in like the Zelda cursor is close to it. Maybe think that's a little dangerous, like, um, what happens if they click the button before it loads? It should work anyway. That's what progressive enhancement is about, right? Is that the button works even if JavaScript isn't there, but if JavaScript is there, you get an enhanced experience. So you should never have buttons that do nothing unless the JavaScript is there. Because yeah, then you run into issues like that where you might get into some sort of a race condition. Um, but always make your buttons work. It's just nice. I have a question about, you brought up a, a render uh, framework. Is that a similar framework to Meteor or Express, the couple of node frameworks? Uh, so render is different than both of those. Uh, render tries to basically take the MVW stuff that we've been doing in the client or backbone and put it onto the server as a starting point. Uh, and then it serves up HTML using JavaScript views from the server, a node server, uh, and then pulls in the rest of the stuff so that you still end up with like backbone and the client. I'm reasonably certain that it is implemented or can be used as express middleware. I'm like 75% true. Uh, so it does something a little bit different than those. Okay. Have you, I'm trying to work with some of those frameworks. Do you have a favorite? They're kind of new to me. And um, so I'm not really sure you know, which one is best to start with because I'm looking to mess around with some node frameworks. Um, do you have a recommended one or do you recommend any of them? 
for no web Are you looking for like a full like web app development framework yeah. thingy? I have no idea. Um, I, I feel like there's, I, I don't know of anything that I would recommend off the top of my head. I know that there's a bunch that are floating around, um, but none of them to the point where I feel like I would want to spend the time, if I was building something new from scratch, like it, there's still a lot of piecing together that you have to do on your own. I don't know that there's one true way yet. 